Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. It's really our chance to be in dialogue with some amazing members of the Park Avenue Synagogue community and the community at large on the issues of the day and in a way that informs ourselves of the urgent issues of the hour. And it is election season, and we are really excited to have our own uh, congregant. I love all my congregants. He's not my favorite congregant, <laughs> but he's certainly, you know, first among equals. Um, Neil Steiner, longtime member of the synagogue, who um, has been recognized with a pro bono publico award by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Pro Bono and Public Service. The ABA describes a pro bono publico award as its top honor for extraordinary and sustained commitment to pro bono service. What's interesting to know about Neil is that all this is happening in his uh, spare time because he's a partner in Deckert's Trial Investigations and Securities Group and a trustee of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. He's been a national trailblazer for protecting the rights of marginalized individuals to exercise one of their most basic freedoms, the right to vote. So there is much to share about um, Neil's bio, but most of all, I want to thank you, my friend, for being part of this conversation um, to bring to our community all of the work you are doing. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. And thank you, Rabbi. I'm happy to uh, be here. The election cases are you know, something that I care deeply about and can talk to just about anyone who will listen. So um, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thanks right. again. Look, it's great to have you and give my love to your, your beautiful family who I see and I see you um, all the time at the synagogue. Um, but we don't know what you do. So maybe just by way of a bit of background, um, I believe you are um, uh, you're a corporate lawyer. You deal your white collar defense attorney. That strikes me in addition to your family and other commitments. That's a full time job and then some. So how exact what's the story of how you got involved in election law? and voting rights cases. Right, so uh, so my primary job, as you said, is I handle government investigations and uh, civil litigation for a variety of corporate executives, private equity funds, hedge funds, that type of work. Um, my pro bono work and the voting work specifically, I got involved, um, it's really been, it was 2006, so shortly after I became a partner, um, so a young partner at the time, wanted to take on, you know, Deckard encourages everyone to do pro bono work and to do it um, with the same uh, passion and excellence that, that they want people to do the rest of their work. Um, and so I was looking for something that I could really get involved in. And a case came along in Ohio um, that had to do with registration of voters at public assistance agencies. Um, and it seemed like a great case. And I got involved in that and have been doing a lot of various types of election work um, since then. So <clears throat> that first case was 
Um, I don't know if you know when you go and get your driver's license, assuming you have one in New York City, um, but they ask you, would you like to register to vote or do you need to change your address as part of your driver's license transaction? And that same federal law, which was passed in 1993, um, overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly bipartisan said that's provided at public at DMVs. And to reach people who might not have cars, who might not have driver's licenses, the other large group of people um, that might be out there, they made that same set of services. Would you like to register to vote, change your address, anything you need to do for voter registration at federally funded public assistance agencies? And so not unemployment, but um, what was at the time food stamps, I think now it's cash assistance, um, is the primary one, but other types of public services are supposed to provide the same thing. And, and in the state of Ohio and many other places, that part of it had kind of fallen by the wayside. And we got involved and uh, took the case up to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals and then eventually settled. And I think in the two years after the settlement, there were 800,000 additional voter registrations um, in Ohio. Um, and from there, did similar cases in other states and then moved to other types of voting issues, whatever the, the voting issue of the day was. And, and pretty soon you're receiving awards for your decades-long service from 2006. But that's where it all got started. That, that, that was the case that got it started. And um, since then, I think I've tried three or four voting cases. I tried a case in Wisconsin, in Kansas, um, in Texas, in New York, actually, where you wouldn't think uh, that there would be uh, as much of a need. And then the beginning of this year, a case in um, in Arkansas. So so I have absolutely no competency on this. I, I once took the LSAT, but that never went anywhere. So just very basic civics lesson here for me, but I'm going to say for those listening um, as a way to hide my ignorance here. So um, this this question of voting rights, um, because one would think that everyone who wants to vote can vote. And this idea that there is a, I mean, is it a cabal out there that is trying to figure out different ways to restrict uh, the access of citizens to um, be registered voters? And then it could be by way of a license, by way of a restrictive measure. I mean, what, what's actually the the inside baseball of those who would deny certain groups voting access. Yeah, and so, there, well, first let me say, I think you have a few thousand congregants who are uh, quite pleased with the decision that you uh, made and the direction uh, <laughs> you took, but um, I think- someone, for, one, someone once said, it's good for the legal profession and good for the rabbinic <laughs> profession that my job ended up the way it did. So uh, I can't comment on the former, but certainly on the latter. Um, the uh, so with anything, you know, there are some groups. Um, I think people generally say, at least, well, look, we want anyone who's entitled to vote to be able to vote, um, but that's interpreted in different ways. And I think um, it's not uniform in why people uh, believe this or act the way that they act. But if there are certain groups that you know are more likely, if you're a political candidate or a, you know, a politician, a political group, you might say, well, if there are some groups I know are more likely to vote one way, uh, my way, I want to make sure that those people get registered. And maybe I don't want to stop 
some other group from registering or from voting, but I'm less interested in in making sure that they do. I mean, our work and my and my work in the voting area, my firm's work in the voting area is entirely nonpartisan. It's designed to say uh, your starting point, um, anyone who uh, is a U.S. citizen, and there's you know a small category of people who are disqualified, um, people who are currently incarcerated for a felony, or typically disqualified after you're out, different states have different laws. But generally speaking, any U.S. citizen who's over 18 uh, is entitled to vote. And that's the right that we're seeking to enforce. Um, yeah, I don't want to sort of put ill motives on people, but certainly, um, you know, there's a perception that, say, poorer groups tend to vote in a particular way, um, that certain minority groups tend to vote in a particular way. And, and there might be an interest uh, in some groups to say, OK, well, let's not make it so easy for certain categories of people to vote because it'll uh, improve my chances of winning. And that's not really what elections are supposed to be about. Elections are supposed to be about everyone uh, being able to vote. And you know, the person who gets the most votes from that uh, election of the people who are eligible and, and who choose to vote uh, right. should be the winner. So I'm just trying to think of like when someone picks up the phone to Neil Steiner, right? The, the, the red line. So um, there is a restrictive practice that's somehow suppressing some uh, population in the electorate who would otherwise, you know, as a citizen be allowed to vote um, and um, to um, serve to disadvantage one candidate to give an advantage to another candidate. Um, and, but it seems to me, you know, some of the things like just having an ID, right? Yep. That, that doesn't seem cruel and unusual. That, that actually seems like I want to know who it's, they're voting. And I come from Chicago and, you know, there's that joke about vote, um, often, whatever. Early and it's often. Like, yeah. Early and often, right? So, so I don't understand. So help me understand, like, what it would be that would suppress or discriminate against a certain population. And then ultimately the question, Neil, is then what do you do about right. it or, or people like you? And so and so that's one of the cases that I did, or you might say two of the cases that I did um, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin in 2000 and 12, probably maybe 2011, passed the law that said you have to show, it was a very restrictive law, you have to show one of a certain limited type of document, um, the type of identification, of, of photo identification in order to be able to vote. Mm -hmm. Of course, you don't have to have photo identification as a citizen, and all citizens are entitled to vote. And But, but the question you asked is exactly, um, and we got involved with the ACLU, um, and a group, the National Coalition on Homelessness and Poverty, to challenge that law representing um, people in Wisconsin who didn't have IDs. And our clients fell in actually to a few different categories. Um, but you know, you say, and I would say, well, how hard is that? We have our driver's license. If we lose our driver's license, it might be uh, you know hours inconvenience or half a day's inconvenience to go um, get another one. You know, you, you need your birth certificate to go get your driver's license. You go to your, uh, whether it's a place in your apartment or whether it's your safe deposit box, you get out your birth certificate and you go, you've misplaced that, you know how to get on the computer and, you know, it might cost you a few bucks, um, but you can get a replacement. That's not the experience of 
large groups of the population. If you're, you know, if you're homeless, um, you know, if you're an hourly worker, you know, if so, if you're homeless, like, is that really the first thing that you're going to do with your time? Do you have documents? Do you have them with you if you're in a shelter, if you're on the street, if you're, you know, working kind of an hourly worker or working poor, you know, it's, it's one thing if, you know, I leave work for an hour and I kind of do that work at 11 o'clock at night. I'm sure you experience uh, the same thing. If you're working an hourly shift and you lose, you probably aren't even losing just an hour. You probably have to take the day off um, and you're losing a day's worth of pay um, to do something like that. And then if you don't have um, your underlying birth certificate or social security card and the process of trying to get uh, those documents, you know, for someone who's relatively well educated, relatively well off, um, it's an inconvenience. If you're less educated, if you're less well off, it's a lot more than an inconvenience. And then in Wisconsin, we had um, a large number of people. I mean, you know, as examples, probably a dozen people to come in and testify. A lot of uh, elderly, um, particularly some um, African American citizens and, and a lot of them women who were born in the South. So in Milwaukee, there's a large population that migrated uh, north from Mississippi primarily or Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, I think people who were born in the 30s and 40s in the state of Mississippi, there wasn't a hospital that admitted black patients. And so, you know, maternity ward was a midwife at home for much longer than, you know, you or I would like to think about. And you didn't necessarily then have a birth certificate. And maybe you had a registration of birth uh, filed somewhere with, uh, you know, with a hospital somewhere, with a county somewhere, but it might not have been your actual birthday. It might have been a week or two weeks later. Um, it might have had a name on it that wasn't the name that you used for 60 years growing up. Or then if you got married and your name was changed um, for, for the women who testified, um, it was a lot more than an inconvenience. And for many of them, yeah. it just wasn't possible. Um, and so that's so that was the voter ID, and that's where you know you can register, you can do everything, but you have to show some form of ID to go and vote. Um, and that was that was the Wisconsin uh, case that I tried in I think November of 2013, and some parts did of it win, are still did running it? on. Uh, of course, we won it, um, and uh, <laughs> we uh, we went to the appeals court I think three times, and we're kind of two and one and two at the appeals court. Uh, we did get a good ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court in that case that allowed our win to stay in effect for the 2014 election. Um, and through the process, Wisconsin's changed their law a lot. They've made it a lot okay. easier for someone to get ID. They've actually provided a lot of homeless people with IDs that benefit people far more than just to vote. Um, right. So the challenge has done a lot of, a lot of So stuff. what are the big cases right now? In the here and now, um, so, so it was a few years ago, what, what what's the state of play? Yeah, so I think the voter ID cases are largely over because what's allowed and what's not has sort of been uh, pretty well set. Um, the big thing right now is primarily in 2022, uh, 2023, 2024 will be redistricting, um, and that looks very different in a lot of different uh, states. 
Um, there's and so we're involved in I think three redistricting cases, um, which are all questions of redistricting affecting different racial groups, and so claims that the state legislatures have drawn redistricting maps, whether for Congress or for state elections, um, that don't provide an equal opportunity uh, in most of our cases for African-American voters to, to elect candidates of choice to the extent that they should be able to. Um, some of that is kind of building off of historical issues. Some of it is building off of kind of weakening of um, voter protections by the U.S. Supreme Court over the last decade. Um, but there's a lot of redistricting cases going on, and uh, those will continue for the next couple of years would be my guess. And and any, I mean, this is all, uh, no no one's a prophet here, but the, the new composition of the Supreme Court, is that an area of concern for someone who's invested in, in questions of redistricting? I think, uh, well, it depends which side you're on, um, but it's a concern for anyone who um, I think views the law the way I do um, in terms of what should be permitted and what shouldn't be permitted. Um, and so there are questions like, Okay, well, if if you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of uh, race, but yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court has said a couple of years ago um, you can draw districts. It's okay to district um, on the basis of party affiliation. You you can you know it's not a it's not a question of the U.S. Constitution or U.S. federal law. It's a question of state law uh, as to whether you can um, draw districts to get a partisan advantage. Um, but those two things in many respects are very closely interrelated. And so how courts interpret that and how the U.S. Supreme Court eventually um, interprets that question of, um, you know, if, if, if a minority group saying, look, we're being weakened because uh, because of our minority status and states is no, 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 um, it's not because you're black or because you're, you know, um, it's because you're a Democrat, uh, for example. Uh, you know where that falls on the in the Supreme Court as to what's permitted or not will be um, a big issue. And then the states have te have taken the question of partisanship in all you know, different directions. The state of New York said, "No, you can't draw maps to partisan advantage," and struck down the maps that the New York Legislature or the New York. Uh, districting commission had passed, whereas in Florida and some other places, they said, no, 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 it's perfectly fine. You can have a mm. map that, you know, overwhelmingly favors one political party or another. Right. So that's really going to play out. I have two last quick questions for you. Uh, number one is when I think of threats to democracy right now, um, I think of the threat of election denialism. Uh, and we're recording this just in the wake of the November uh, 2022 elections, which are still with runoffs, and that'll be my last question going on. Is there um, uh, a place for uh, your sacred work, Neil, when it comes to election denialism, or is that really just a, a cultural malaise that we're in and you know, there, there's not really a, a legal intervention? Yeah, so... I would say yes and no, right? So part of what you, part of it, I think, is is where we are um, in the world or in society or in segments of 
of society. I do think that we saw in this election a little bit of a turn back from that. Not everyone, but at least some of the candidates who were 2020 election deniers who lost have been unhappy about it, but have recognized and said, we, you know, we did lose the election. The rules might not be the rules we want them to be, but we lost under the rules that exist and, you know, on with life and, you know, please, please, you know, respect the person who was elected, which is up until 2020, how U.S. elections always uh, went. Um, my personal view is that if you do things to promote the concept that everyone who's entitled to vote should be able to vote um, and uh, and you kind of make that happen. And so in, in this past election, we only had a couple. There were only a couple of cases. I was involved in two of them. Uh, one was in Georgia in Cobb County, where they just through administrative mistake didn't send a thousand ballots, a thousand thirty six ballots, absentee ballots that had been requested. We managed to get those sent or have other arrangements for people to vote. I think when you're doing things and there's confidence that, OK, it was proper. People who were able to vote were able to vote. That does kind of promote faith um, in the system. And and the flip side of that, when it's just chaos, that I think takes away faith in the system probably in all directions. So I do think that this election maybe didn't get us entirely there, but seemed to me right to be direction. a step back in the right direction. Uh, we yeah. we can all hope. We'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens yeah. you know, in 2024. But it, it did seem to be after the election. I, I'm not sure I would have predicted that uh, two weeks ago, but in the week since the election, I think that's how we've moved. And if I were a better rabbi, I would end there because I would end on an upbeat <laughs> note. But I, I do want to ask, is there, um, but you, you mentioned Georgia, um, and that runoff is happening on December 6th between Warnock and, and Walker. Um, are there specific issues that you're looking at uh, in anticipation of that runoff? So it seemed that with the one exception of the, the Cobb County you know, issue on these absentee ballots, it, there didn't seem to be a lot of complaints that I saw coming out of Georgia. Um, I think you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about some of the laws that were passed after 2020. Um, but they didn't, you know, I didn't see complaints on election day or in the lead up to the election other than than the one issue. And I, you know, I think the runoff will be, um, I think it'll be well run. There's no reason that we're anticipating any problems. You know, we and others will be around if there are to try and step in. But um, I do have some, you know, hopeful confidence that uh, it'll be run okay. I mean, you always worry about a runoff and whether enough people actually show up to vote and, you know, how that, whether that's a good system or a bad system to have the right majority requirement. But I, but, I but that's, think, a, that's a different challenge. That's, to a, get that's out a different, yeah, yeah. that's a different challenge, but I think on how the election will be run, I think it'll, right. I, I expect it to be run smoothly. So Neil Steiner does your Jewish identity an unscripted, but <laughs> obvious question to come from the rabbi because when we see you in shul, uh, does your uh, does your Jewish identity inform your work here, or you came by this through otherwise? Um, so I would say that that's a good question um, because of the members of my family, I'm probably the least well able 
uh, to answer that and tie it together. I think the, the concept of trying to do whatever you think it is, trying to do something that you think is good to help people, to help the world, to try and help make things better, um, I think you would tell me is part of all of our Jewish identity. Um, and so in that sense, I guess the answer is, um, you know, yes. And I think on some of these issues, there's uh, there's probably a pretty long tradition of, of uh, a lot of Jewish lawyers being involved in a lot of the uh, voting yeah. work. Um, but um, specifically to voting, I would need uh, I would need your help or I would need, you know, my son's Look, help. I, or- <laughs> I, I feel that this is a very Jewish conversation, actually. Number one, I think um, as Jews who have been historically disenfranchised um, and uh, on the sidelines um, pre-enlightenment emancipation, I think the idea that we remember that we were once strangers in a strange land, um, it's very much, um, you know, a way to brand uh, the work you're doing. And I would also say, um, if, I, if I could speak uh, biblically, the idea that everyone is created equally uh, in the infinite dignity of the divine, rich or poor, no matter what color your skin is, no matter um, your age or otherwise, each one of us stands as equals. Um, and it seems to me that the backbone of a working democracy is this proposition that um, we're all equal stakeholders uh, in elections. And so um, I, I don't know if that's helpful for you for next time you're asked, but um, but it certainly makes me feel good um, to know that not only are you doing this sacred work, but that you are a proud congregant of Park Avenue Synagogue. So, um, Neil, thank you so much for being part of Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. And as I'll say to you, with strong confidence, I'll see you in shul. I'll see you in synagogue. <laughs> so, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Rabbi. I was happy to be here. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.